Welcome to Policy for the People, a show that explores the public policies that can lift up all Oregonians. This show is a collaboration between KMUZ Radio and the Oregon Center for Public Policy. I am your host, Juan Carlos Ordonez. The clock is ticking on the nation's ability to pay its debts. As U.S. House Republicans refuse to raise the debt ceiling, unless Democrats in the White House agree to steep budget cuts. While much of the attention has been on the economic crisis that could follow a default by the U.S. on its debt obligations, that's not the only risk facing our nation and our state. In this special episode of Policy for the People, we examine what's at stake for Oregonians in the debt ceiling negotiations. OCPP Executive Director Alejandro Queral spoke with Whitney Tucker, Director of State Fiscal Policy Research at the Center on Budget and Policy Priorities, about the economic hardship that would fall on Oregonians from the budget cuts sought by House Republicans. The Center on Budget and Policy Priorities, CBPP, is a nonpartisan research institute that advances federal and state policies to help build a nation where everyone has the resources they need to thrive and share in the nation's prosperity. Here is Alejandro's conversation with Whitney Tucker. Whitney, welcome to Policy for the People. There has been a lot of news recently about the so-called debt ceiling crisis. President Biden and Speaker McCarthy are holding meetings and their teams are negotiating around two key things, the federal budget and lifting the debt ceiling so the U.S. can pay debts that it has already incurred. Can you give us a summary of what the debt ceiling is and why this has become such a crisis? Sure. So the debt ceiling generally is just the total amount that the federal government is allowed to borrow. The federal government spends more than it collects in revenue, and it borrows that difference. And raising the debt ceiling, also sometimes called the debt limit, you know, um, it doesn't authorize any new spending or tax cuts, but it instead just allows us to pay the bills that are already due. This has really become a crisis, um, you know, according to some folks, because what we're seeing is that House Republicans are are using the debt ceiling as a bargaining chip in a larger conversation about budget priorities that they have, um, many of which would have really devastating consequences for programs and services that people all over the country rely on every day in order to, to get those really unpopular and costly cuts through, they are saying that they will not raise the debt ceiling um, without them. And so President Biden and congressional leaders are sort of stuck in a gridlock about how to get House Republicans to the table on raising the debt limit, which we have to do um, in order to pay our bills and to keep the nation from going into default, and also wanting to support people and communities that rely on the programs and services that we are currently funding at our current levels. Before we go into a little bit more of the weeds on how this uh, conversation is being structured, can you just explain the broad outline of what McCarthy and the Republican caucus are proposing and what would those changes mean for low and middle income Oregonians? What House Speaker McCarthy and House Republicans have put forward is a bill with just a number of truly devastating provisions. Um, the first of which I'll cover is just this bill would institute strict caps on federal funding for what are known as discretionary programs, which are just all the programs that Congress annually appropriates money to pay for. Aid to states and localities and tribal governments and U.S. territories makes up a significant share of that funding, so Oregonians are going to feel that hit. 
the funding caps that are in this bill would force severe cuts to all those discretionary programs. And those programs include things like defense and veterans health care, child care and preschool, K-12 education, environmental protection, housing, public health, Pell grants and college work study, all kinds of things. And then under this bill, every year for the next 10 years, there would be a single cap on funding for all discretionary programs. In 2024, that cap would actually be set at last year's overall funding levels, so 2022 levels, and there wouldn't be any adjustment for inflation or any other relevant changes to the level of need. Every year after 2024, that overall funding cap would only rise by just 1%. That 1% is significantly less than the projected inflation rate over the next decade, so the cuts that the bill would force in discretionary programs would just grow deeper every single year as funding falls further and further behind costs. In terms of actual literal cost, um, by 2033, our team at the Center on Budget estimates that the cuts in this bill would amount to $3.6 trillion relative to the baseline funding levels reported by the Congressional Budget Office. Overall discretionary funding would be cut, um, would be cut by 13% in 2024 alone, and the cuts would just continue to grow steadily from there until they reached about 24% in 2033. And that's just the average reductions. Right, right. And essentially what I'm hearing you say is that it's not only this one-time cut, but it, the belt continues to tighten because the programs and the funding for those programs is not growing with inflation as we expect it to, to, to grow. Absolutely. And if Congress decided to lessen the cuts to any specific programs, they'd have to make even larger cuts to the others, which would you know, just make the problem even worse. Which brings me to the next question, because I have been reading that, and Republicans have been adamant, that veterans' health, health would not be cut and uh, military spending would not be cut. So if that's the case, if those are removed from the lot of things to be uh, reduced in the budget, what does that do to all the other programs like food assistance and uh, direct assistance for needy families? One of the wildest things about this bill is that it doesn't actually spell out exactly what programs would be cut. It just calls for these huge unspecified cuts in appropriated programs. And, you know, a large share of that funding pool goes to states. So if House Republicans follow through with the intentions that they've shared to, you know, protect uh, funding for defense and for veterans benefits, that would require them to cut even more massively from other programs. If that were to happen, overall cuts to discretionary funding that otherwise would have gone to states and localities would amount to about $84 billion next year and a really outrageous $1.3 trillion over the next 10 years. That figure would amount to about a 59% cut in discretionary program funding in 2033 for all programs that you know, aren't defense or um, veterans benefits. And so we're talking crowded classrooms, we're talking underfunded uh, facilities for treating water, all kinds of public utilities and public goods would not receive the funding that they needed. And that's outside of the changes that this bill um, proposes to specific benefit programs as well, like Medicaid, SNAP, and um, temporary assistance for needy families. So a lot is at stake here for families throughout the country. Why do you think uh, these programs are being singled out? You know, I think that it has a lot to do with public ideas of deservedness that have been around for a very long time. I mentioned SNAP and Medicaid and TANF as programs that 
new or expanded work reporting requirements have been proposed for. And I just want to say that like justifications for work reporting requirements are really rooted in discriminatory stereotypes that are based on race and gender and disability status and class that imply that people who receive benefits do not work and have to be compelled to do so. And so they also just really ignore the realities of low wage work. And I think they seem easy to take off the table for people who are far removed from that work and from the impacts of those program cuts. So in essence, what they are doing is they're imposing a number of requirements that create such a bureaucracy that really reduces the number of people that are actually enrolled in this program. So it sounds like they're cutting on both ends, both on the demand by making it more difficult, but also obviously, as we were talking just a minute ago, on the amount of money available for those programs. Did I get that right? Correct. And it's also just not supported by what we know about how work reporting requirements you know, work. We know that they're not effective. We know that they are essentially just going to cut enrollment, um, partly because you know people who are receiving food and health and income assistance are often working or between jobs. And if they aren't, they're in school or have serious disabilities or health conditions or have caregiving responsibilities. And those things will fluctuate um, throughout people's lives, like, you know, what sort of requirements that has on their time changes. And we also know that the nature of low wage work is just such that it often requires fluctuating hours and doesn't offer workers paid leave. So if a worker has their hours cut back unexpectedly, or um, if they have a health condition, um, even something temporarily that could, under this bill, cause them to lose their health coverage or food assistance just because they are having difficulty navigating the system to prove that they should be exempted from that requirement. I think it is a thinly veiled attempt to ensure that fewer people are receiving that aid over the long term in whatever way that you know, House Republicans could get that through. Right. And and in many ways, I mean, the program is obviously uh, designed, as you say, with a lot of red tape, that it's also designed in a way that uh, because the states have to put some money to restore some of these programs in addition to the federal fund, the system uh, is basically governed by the states and they impose within a certain framework a number of rules. And so that difference from state to state uh, may result in some communities actually suffering more because of these requirements. Is that right? Correct. So this bill, um, just thinking about TANF, for example, would it would uh, require new, more rigid requirements on states to you know determine whether families are eligible for um, temporary assistance for needy families, which is a cash support program, and in making it harder for states to comply it is very likely that many people will be at risk of losing that income support completely because states will just determine that they can't meet those more rigid requirements and they'll decide to stop providing that aid altogether. So in Oregon specifically, we've estimated that more than 25,000 families that are subject to TANF work reporting requirements would be at risk of losing their benefits under this bill. And those households include more than 43,000 children. Take a moment to share this episode with your friends. It's a great way for people to discover this show, and it really helps us out. Also, please consider making a donation to the Oregon Center for Public Policy. Contributions by people like you helps us create more content like this. 
and it helps us communicate more broadly about how to advance economic justice in Oregon. Go to ocpp.org and make a contribution today. Thanks, and now to the rest of our show. Center on Budget and Policy Priorities estimated not too long ago that more than it's like over 300,000 people enrolled in the Oregon Health Plan would be at risk of losing coverage. In Oregon, this proposal puts 316,000 people, which is about 33% of the state's Medicaid enrollees, at risk of just losing the health care that they really need. And that can include, you know, really life-saving medication, treatment to manage chronic conditions, and also care for just acute illnesses. Because the bill takes away coverage from people who don't meet a completely new work reporting requirement. And, you know, proponents might argue that the bill actually gives states an option to take Medicaid coverage away from people who don't comply with this um, requirement. But that's really just misdirection. The bill terminates federally funded Medicaid coverage for those who don't meet the work reporting requirements. And so while states could theoretically provide state funded coverage to those people, um, with the federal government currently covering 90% of the cost of coverage for people who've received their health care through um, Medicaid expansion under the ACA, states are just really extremely unlikely to keep up coverage for large numbers of people who don't meet the requirement because it's costly. And prior to the ACA's expansion, I will note, states could have provided coverage for the population of people, and they didn't. Well, let's let's go back to the work requirements issue, because this is something that is not new. You know, in the 90s, under President Bill Clinton and then Speaker of the House, Newt Gingrich, we had the so-called welfare reform, and that imposed a whole bunch of work requirements. What did we learn about those requirements? I mean, the intent and continues to be the line today, which is, you know, get people back to work and become independent from so-called welfare. But what have we learned over the last two decades? We've learned that work reporting requirements are not supported by the decades of evidence that we have on benefit programs that have instituted them. We know that SNAP, for example, um, already has a work reporting requirement for some participants between ages 18 and 49, and that requirement is a failure. Growing evidence from the past 30 years just shows that it takes food away from people, but it doesn't actually help them to get jobs or increase their earnings. And then relatedly, um, a Medicaid work reporting requirement in Arkansas that's actually similar to the scheme put forward in this debt limit and cuts bill, it actually just caused 18,000 people to lose their coverage within just seven months. And it also didn't actually increase employment. These requirements are based in really old and tired stereotypes about deservedness and laziness that have been around a long time. And the evidence doesn't support them. You know, this is this can be a little bit overwhelming. And I, I appreciated CBPP's president, Sharon Parrott, when she put it really succinctly the other day, she said something like, don't get trapped in the weeds, focus on the big picture. Essentially, you know, we, what we need to remember is that they would take healthcare away, food assistance and income support from people who are counting on this uh, if the McCarthy bill moves forward. What then is, do you think, the message that legislators need to hear from their constituents? One of the most effective messages that people can share is about the positive benefit that they have received from public benefit programs. A lot of lawmakers 
need to hear from people who rely on Medicaid, who rely on SNAP, who rely on TANF to ensure that they are able to afford food, to ensure that they are able to pay their rent and to ensure that they're able to you know, pay the cost of their prescriptions to know that these programs cannot and should not be a bargaining chip in a larger conversation about the debt limit. People can't afford for that to happen, literally. And so obviously the question that hangs in the balance is, you know, what is the outlook? And I know you're a policy analyst and you're not in the business of predicting political outcomes, but I'm curious from your perspective in DC, what do things look like? Do you think that we'll be able to avert uh, the, you know, dire repercussions if we uh, exceed the debt limit in, I think it's June 1st when Treasury Secretary Yellen has, has pointed to as a date where we would hit sort of the bottom uh, of the barrel in terms of our our, our dollars available. Uh, what what do you think uh, can can we make it before we hit that point? You know, I it's hard to say. We've not gotten this close to default before, so I'm not sure. I do know that if we don't make it, that defaulting on our national debts for even a few weeks would really just plunge the nation into recession, and it would drive up unemployment. And that would be terrible, especially now when many families are just continuing to recover from all of the economic turmoil that the COVID-19 pandemic wrought. So I hope that congressional leaders are able to reach a deal. And I also hope that Republican lawmakers are able to reassess their priorities and their fiscal agenda, because I think that putting forward this bill um, as a way to address the debt limit and also not a full budget is part of the way that right now those lawmakers are really hiding a fiscal agenda that is reallocating national resources to a small group of people who are already wealthy. We know from analysis that we've done at the center that you know House Republicans have already said that they intend to make all of the expiring 2017 Trump tax cuts permanent, including those that benefit very wealthy households. And that that would cost about $300 billion annually. And they're also not putting forth any plan to raise revenues to pay for that. And doing that alone would erase most of the claimed fiscal savings of this debt limit proposal. And I just think it's important for people to zoom out and to say that, you know, if you look at those tax cuts, if you look at these program cuts, if you look at all of it together, it is clear that the current House Republican agenda would be shifting trillions of dollars that could be spent on community investments that promote broad opportunity to a subset of just very well-off households instead. And that would just be engaging in you know, trickle-down economics that we know does not work. And it would narrow opportunity and deepen inequality and increase hardship for most Americans. So I am hopeful that we can come to some sort of resolution that will avoid that outcome. Wow. Well, you know, and when you put it that way, it's hard not to think that really is, you know, taking away from the poor to give to the rich. I mean, even when it comes to closing tax loopholes, I read the other day that that was outright rejected by the Republicans. We're talking about tax loopholes that weren't even intended to be there when those laws were written, but now they are couching them as tax cuts and anything that closes those tax loopholes are couched as uh, tax increases. The larger point is that, as you say, this is really reenacting something from the 80s, trickle-down economics that we know really doesn't work. And in fact, I think if you look back at the data, it has the tendency of increasing deficits much more rapidly. Absolutely. 
Um, I'll say that, you know, just adding insult to injury on that point, this bill would also cut nearly all of the $80 billion in federal funding that um, was included in the Inflation Reduction Act to go toward the IRS so that that agency could rebuild its technology and strengthen its ability to enforce tax collection too. So not only are we seeing you know, tax cuts for the rich being pushed, but we're also seeing a concerted effort to ensure that tax collection does not happen for the wealthiest households. And right now, we know that the Congressional Budget Office has estimated that that provision alone, that provision to significantly cut IRS funding, would actually add $114 billion to the national deficit over the next decade, because the reduced funding would mean the IRS could do less to enforce our tax laws and ensure that wealthy households pay the taxes they owe. Republican lawmakers are essentially, in choosing to push forward this proposal, choosing to give that money away to wealthy tax cheats at the expense of everyone else. Thank you for summarizing and discussing the many implications uh, of this moment uh, and of this uh, set of negotiations that are ongoing in DC. Is there anything else that you would like to add? Anything else that I didn't ask you that you would like to highlight? I would just like to add that there have been some recent reports that potentially uh, work requirements are back on the table in negotiations. And I just encourage all of your listeners to reach out to their congressional representatives and let them know that they don't support work requirements for SNAP, for TANF, for Medicaid. We not only need to pass a clean debt ceiling bill now to avoid really massive economic fallout, but we also need to reject proposed cuts and really harmful changes to benefit programs that we know would increase poverty and take healthcare and food assistance away from people. We have to be pushing back on this on all fronts. And now is not the time to sit by and kind of see how things shake out. Thank you very much, Whitney. Really appreciate your time and come back to visit us at Policy for the People. Would love to. Thank you for having me. And thank you for listening to Policy for the People. We will see you next time.